I wish God would just show me a sign. Have you ever heard someone say that? Maybe you've even said it yourself. Well, we come this morning to a name of the Lord Jesus that is first prophesied after God offers to show someone a sign and they turn it down. But in response, God says, I myself will give you a sign. And that sign would be that a virgin would conceive and bear a son and he would be called Emmanuel. And it is that name Emmanuel that we want to think about this morning. And we're going to do so under two headings. Uh, Saying firstly, Emmanuel, God's sign. And then secondly, Emmanuel, God with us. So firstly this morning, Emmanuel, God's sign. I got a new laptop recently for the last eight years. I've been working off a a desktop computer uh, that never leaves my desk. Uh, But I've also had a laptop that I can take with me when I've been traveling or that I can use elsewhere in the house. The advantage of the, the, the desktop is that there's, uh, it's got a bigger screen, uh, which is helpful uh, for my sermon preparation. I've used, I've got different commentaries up on the screen, different Bible versions, different documents. Uh, so that's uh, an advantage of the, of the big screen. But, but on the other hand, the, the laptop's advantage is that it is portable. But my plan for, for next year is to buy uh, a separate monitor, uh, to a separate screen that I can connect the laptop up to, so that rather than having to buy uh, a laptop and then a desktop, I, I, I just buy a laptop and I plug it into the screen when I'm home. Uh, but if I'm going somewhere, I just unplug the laptop and take it with me. And now it might be a couple of months before I I get the screen and until then I'll be able to do anything that I need to do on the laptop. But once the screen comes I'll be able to see it all much more clearly. And in a sense you could think of the the laptop by itself like the Old Testament and uh, connecting it to the screen as like the New Testament. Everything is there in the Old Testament, at least in seed form. But when the New Testament is added, we see it all the more clearly. Uh, when I when I do get the screen, uh, I'll get one that is designed to go with the laptop. Uh, and in the same way, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they come from the same source. Uh, they come from the same author. They're designed to go together. God knew what he was going to say in the New Testament when he gave us the Old Testament. So what does that illustration have to do with Emmanuel? Well, Emmanuel is a name given in the Old Testament, but it's only with the New Testament that we see more clearly what it means. Matthew's Gospel is full of quotations and allusions to the Old Testament. And the name Emmanuel is one of those direct quotations taken from Isaiah chapter 7. In Matthew 1, the angel has just told Joseph that Mary is pregnant and that the child inside her is from the Holy Spirit. The angel's final words to Joseph are, She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, 
for he will save his people from their sins. And back in July, that was the verse that we focused on when we looked at the name Jesus. And then immediately after it, we read, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, so boys and girls, do you know which prophet Matthew is talking about uh, when, it, when he says to fulfill what the Lord spoke by the prophet? Which prophet? It was the prophet Isaiah. Uh, so the name Emmanuel, it, God with us, it is right there in the Old Testament. The background to Isaiah's prophecy is a king of Judah called Ahaz. And Ahaz's big temptation was to look to human solutions rather than trust in God. And so God sends Isaiah to him with a message. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Basically God is saying if you don't believe me. Ask whatever you want and I'll do it for you. I'll move heaven and earth for you. Just ask but Ahaz refuses to ask. He's already decided that he's not going to trust God. It seems too much of a risk to him. And he's no doubt worried that if he asks for a sign, then God will give it. And he'll have even less excuse for his unbelief. And not only does Ahaz refuse to ask for a sign as God is telling him to do, he tries to use scripture to justify his refusal to ask. It's absolutely shocking. He says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Do you recognize the last part of what he says? Jesus spoke those same words to Satan. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Uh, the words are originally taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6. But here Ahaz is using scriptural words as a mask for unbelief. He's using scripture as a mask for unbelief. He is quoting scripture at God as a reason not to do what God is telling him to do. And Ahaz was not the last to do that. What might this look like today? Well, it might be like a church sitting on loads of money and refusing to use it to reach out to their local community and saying, well, the Bible calls us to be wise stewards. It might look like a church refusing to deal with sin in its midst and saying, well, the Bible tells us not to judge. It might be using the principle of safety as a reason not to come to church or, or not to reach out to certain groups in the community. Uh, but all such reasoning, such misuse of scripture to justify a lack of faith is wearying not only to man but to God. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Ahaz has been invited to ask for a sign and he has refused. But Isaiah responds, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Judgment will come in Ahaz, but God won't forget his covenant promises. 
And so Isaiah says that the day will come when the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So the virgin birth is there. It's right there in the Old Testament. It's there 700 years before the birth of Jesus. There's also one of the most hotly debated passages in the Old Testament. Uh, There is at least one uh, liberal-influenced Bible translation. I'm sure there's a few, actually, uh, where uh, it's simply translated as young woman. Uh, And it's true that the word itself doesn't specify uh, that the young woman will be a virgin. Uh, But there are other places where the same word does unquestionably refer to young, unmarried women. Uh, So this is the closest word Isaiah could have used to say what he wants to say. And uh, as further evidence, it says that the mother will be the one who calls his name Jesus. Uh, That would have been the father's responsibility, but without a human father, the responsibility will fall to the mother. Uh, So so just a a hint there as well, what Isaiah is prophesying. Uh, And uh, furthermore, if you want some outside evidence that that no one could call biased, uh, the Greek language does have a precise term for virgin. Uh, And when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, 200 years before Jesus, that a specific word is the one that was used. So this isn't Christians coming along later and trying to invent some mythological birth stories about Jesus based on some ambiguous prophecy. We have Isaiah himself using the closest word he can to describe a virgin birth. You have the, the Greek translators of the Old Testament recognising that two centuries before Jesus was born. And this young woman will call the son born to her Emmanuel. The meaning of the name is explained for non-Hebrew speakers by Matthew. Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this would be God's great sign that he had not given up on his people. So firstly, this morning, God's sign. Uh, The birth of Emmanuel, Jesus coming into the world. It means God has not given up on his people. But then secondly, we see Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. What does the name Emmanuel tell us about Jesus' identity? Well, it tells us a lot. During the week, someone asked me what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe And their headline belief is that they don't believe Jesus is God. Now there are many places in scripture we could go to refute that. But here's a really obvious one that I hadn't really thought of before. Jesus is called Emmanuel. He's called God with us. Now I guess people could try and explain that away by saying that It only means that Jesus' birth is evidence that God is with us in a general sense. But Jesus is literally called God with us. And it ties in with what Jesus himself would claim about himself when he would grow up. When he would say, before Abraham was, I am. Or the fact that Jesus himself would receive worship from Thomas. 
So what do we learn about Jesus' identity from the name Emmanuel? We learn first of all that he is God. He is God. What do you think of when you hear the word God? Many people hear the word God and they think fairy tale. Others don't, but they do think distant. They hear God and they think distant, they think far away. They think irrelevant. Not much God may be out there somewhere, but doesn't have much relevance for my day-to-day life. But this name of Jesus should stop us thinking that way about God. It tells us that he is God with us. Emmanuel, not just God, but God with us. And who is God with? Just uh, some people, just the, the exalted people on earth, just good people. No, there is uh, no, uh, no definition like that. Emmanuel is God with sinners. Just like the sort of people listed in the, the first half of Matthew chapter 1. Some very shady characters in uh, the, the background of, uh, of Jesus' earthly family. Jesus' name tells us that he is God come to be with sinners. With those dwelling in darkness. When Jesus begins his public ministry in Matthew chapter 4 we're told that it was to fulfill another prophecy from Isaiah that the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus is God coming to dwell with his people dwelling in deep darkness. Jesus is the kind of Messiah who sits in deep darkness because that's where his people are. Or at least that's where those who would become his people start off. And at this point an important question to ask would be, is Jesus coming to do something entirely new? Or is he coming to restore something that we've lost? Is Jesus coming to do something entirely new? Or is he coming to restore something that we've lost? At this time of year particularly, most people aren't looking for something entirely new. Rather they want to get back to Christmas as it once was, the way they remember it. They they want to get back to, to the time when loved ones who are no longer with us were still here. They want to get back to the time before the children grew up and moved away. Before life and relationships got complicated Back to the years when it snowed. We do seem to have this inbuilt longing as human beings to go back to better days. Even if our memory of those days isn't quite accurate. And the message of the Bible is that there was a time in the past when everything was perfect. When everything was the way it was meant to be. Uh, That time wasn't in our youth or childhood as much as we might think it was But it was way back in the Garden of Eden. And boys and girls, do you know what the best thing was about the Garden of Eden? What was the best thing about the Garden of Eden? God was there. 
God was there in a special way. And what was the worst thing about the Garden of Eden? Or the worst thing about leaving the Garden of Eden? Well, the worst thing leaving about leaving the Garden of Eden was that it was to go away from the presence of the Lord. We're told in Genesis 4 that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, God is everywhere. And he's always been everywhere. But in the beginning, his presence on earth was focused in Eden. So what went wrong? Well, what is it that separates us from God? It is sin. Even while they were still physically in the garden, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, the distance came in between them and God. Genesis 3 verse 8 And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So in the beginning God was with us. God was with Adam and Eve. They had this daily fellowship. Then sin came in and spoiled that. But God wasn't going to let sin spoil his plan to be with his people. And so as the Old Testament went on, God would be present with his people in the tabernacle and then the temple. Where they could approach him on the basis of the blood that was shed there. Or to be more accurate, they could approach him on the basis of the blood that Jesus would one day shed. Which the animal sacrifices were simply pictures of. So God had been present in the Old Testament in a place in Eden, in uh, the, the tabernacle, in the temple. But now with the coming of Jesus, God will be present not simply in a place but in a person. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. And so we could say that Emmanuel is a gospel name. Jesus came to restore everything that sin had taken from us. And he restores it by going to the cross so that sin can be dealt with. And so that we can one day live in God's presence once again. Emmanuel is a gospel name. So have you put your trust in Jesus? If you don't come to God through Jesus, he will remain distant from you and you from him. Because your sin separates you from his presence. Outside of Jesus, the message about heaven that you need to hear is that because of your sin, you can't come in. People say, well, I've lived a better life than a lot of people around me. And I hope that because of that, I'll get into heaven. God says that's not the way it works. Because of your sin, you can't come in. No matter how much better you were than those around you. But it doesn't have to stay that way. So the the name Emmanuel is a gospel name. It speaks of our need and also of what God has done. So that we can be brought back into his presence. Emmanuel is also a name that brings with it much hope for the believer. Do you have a favourite psalm? There can be no doubt that for most people it would be Psalm 23. And do you know which words come right at the centre of Psalm 23? 
four words, you are with me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you're with me. So God with us, you are with me. Psalm 23 and Emmanuel, they're telling us the same thing. In fact, someone has said that Psalm 23 is comforting, not because it's unique, but because it manages to say in so few words what the Bible says in so many words. Psalm 23, in many ways, it summarises the whole Bible. That's why we find it so comforting. And in Psalm 23, the question isn't whether we will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, The question is whether we'll do so with Jesus present with us or not. We will all walk through the valley of the shadow of death if Jesus doesn't return first. But will we walk through it with him present or without him present? Professor Sir Norman Anderson was an English lawyer and evangelist who spent his life in the service of God. His son Hugh died of cancer, aged 21. Four years later, his two remaining children died. By the time of their 60th wedding anniversary, his wife was suffering from dementia to the extent that she could no longer recognise him. In his mid-80s, at one of his final speaking engagements, he was asked this question. When you look back over your life and reflect on the fact that you've lost all three of your children and that your wife of 60 years no longer recognises you, do you ever ask the question, why me? He responded like this. No, I've never asked that question, but I have asked the question, why not me? I am not promised as a Christian that I will escape the problems encountered by others. We all live in a fallen world. I am, however, promised that in the midst of difficulties, God through Christ will be present with me and will give us grace to help me cope with difficulties and bear witness to him. The question isn't whether we will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The question is, will we do so with Jesus present with us? And if we have not lived in his presence in life, we can't suddenly expect that we will die with him present with us unless we repent and believe. So Jesus came to restore what we had lost because of sin. And he promises to be with us both now and forever. We could say that Matthew's gospel is bookended by the promise of Jesus' presence. It begins with the name Emmanuel, God with us in chapter 1. And how does it end? The very last words of Matthew's gospel are, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is present with us now by his Spirit. And one day we will see him face to face. And that is not even just something that we desire. It is something that Jesus desires too. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. 
One of the Puritans, Thomas Munton, said, Christ will not be satisfied in his glorious estate until we are with him. That is an amazing thought. And doesn't it change how we think about heaven to think that Jesus actually wants us to be there with him? Imagine that you're invited to a Christmas gathering How would you feel about it if you knew that you were only being invited because the host felt that they should invite you? That they'd rather you didn't come, but they'd invited you out of a sense of obligation. How would you feel? Well, you might not even go. Or you might still go, but you wouldn't look forward to it with much relish. But contrast that with someone who's arranged the whole thing to make sure that you're able to come. Who can't wait to see you. You would go with a spring in your step because you know that they will be excited to see you. That they are looking out for you coming. Well that's how we should feel about heaven. Jesus desires that we may be with him where he is. And whatever the story of your life is now at the end of 2023, that's where it's heading. Perhaps for some of us, the the story isn't where we would like it to be at this point. Perhaps it's not where we imagined it would be at this point. Uh, Perhaps for some of us, there's a chapter coming and we're not looking forward to it. But whatever the story of your life is now, this is where it's heading One day soon you will see Jesus face to face. And so as we close this morning, in light of all this, in light of the fact of where human history is heading, here are two applications. Two applications that are easy to remember, uh, but not so easy to put into practice. First application is hate sin. Second, love people. Firstly, hate sin. What does sin do? It separates us from God. Even as Christians, it puts a distance between us and him. Jesus is God with us. But just as his sense of, just as Jesus' sense of God's nearness on the cross was lost when our sin was put on him, so our sense of God's nearness is obstructed by sin. And so let's value a sense of God's presence enough to hate sin and by God's grace do the hard work of putting sin to death in our lives, both as individuals and as a church. So the first application in light of the fact that Jesus is Emmanuel, hate sin. Treasure God's presence enough that you hate sin. Second application, love people. Should becoming a Christian drive us away from people or towards people? Well, it may be the case that someone is converted and they realise that they need to make a decisive break with certain people from their past. That certain people, certain influences, they just cannot be around them. But if Jesus is Emmanuel, if Jesus is God with us, That tells us that to truly love people must involve being with them. It tells us that true love doesn't do long distance, at least not for long. 
And it tells us that simply withdrawing from people is no sign of Christ-likeness. In fact, Christ-likeness should drive us towards sinners, not away from them. If Jesus didn't turn up his nose at us, who are we to turn up our nose at others? Jesus didn't let his infinite superiority keep him away from us. So who are we to let our imagined superiority keep us away from others? And perhaps God will use our presence with them as something which opens the door to them hearing the true story of human history. A story which began with God present with his people and a story which will end with the dwelling place of God being with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Let's live and long for that day and labour to bring as many with us as we can. Amen. Well, we close with the the well-known words of Psalm 23b. Psalm 23b uh, on page 42. And right at the centre of this psalm we have those amazing words, Thou art with me. Verse 3, you are with me. That is what enables us to walk through death's dark veil. Uh, That's what ensures that goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. That's what gives us confidence that we will come out the other side of that valley of the shadow of death. And that's what we will perfectly enjoy in God's house forevermore. His presence forever. So Psalm 23b uh, will stand if you're able as we sing praise.